I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, Mark Epstein reflects on Buddhism and psychotherapy and how the two practices mirror each other. There's a sense in Buddhism and in some forms of uh, Western psychotherapy that our potential for being or for happiness or for love is there in us from the beginning. There's a, a Buddhist koan, you know, what was your face before you were born? And later, Epstein talks about the emotional skills needed to be a good therapist. So the Buddha said, if we can train our minds, if we can train ourselves to actually be with that which is difficult to face, we have a chance to have a better life. Rituals and meditation, suffering and joy from a Buddhist-inclined therapist, the full hour with Mark Epstein. That's coming up on Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Mindfulness and meditation have been used for centuries by Buddhists to achieve a sense of calm and well-being amidst the chaos and challenges of life. The rituals of Buddhist practitioners are also mirrored in elements of psychotherapy. The idea, for example, that therapy allows us to sit with whatever thought or emotion arises— and that a skilled therapist is able to change how we relate to stories we tell ourselves. So how do Buddhists confront loss and suffering? Were psychologists like Freud and Winnicott speaking in almost Buddhist language? And how can all of this help us in times of uncertainty? Psychiatrist and psychotherapist Mark Epstein has written numerous books about the integration of Buddhist teachings into psychotherapy, most recently in The Zen of Therapy, Uncovering a Hidden Kindness in Life. He draws on his own experience as a lifelong meditator and scholar and explains how sitting with patients can feel like an exercise in mindfulness. Mark Epstein, welcome to Life Examined. Hey, it's, it's wonderful to be with you. Let's let's jump into into Buddhism and therapy. I, I'm just these are some of my favorite topics, as maybe our listeners know. And I I want to get your sense of how you think about Buddhist philosophy and, and how it may pertain to psychology. But but I think your your interest in this is very rich and interesting, and and goes back quite a far ways in your life. Yeah. Well, the thing that's that's peculiar about uh, about me is that I came to Buddhism and Buddhist psychology and meditation in particular before I knew very much about anything else. Mm. I found it in my first year in college. I met, a, I met a girl who was taking an introduction to world religion class, which it had never occurred to me to take a class like that. But uh, I followed her into the class and uh, the whole first semester was about Eastern religion and the, the Buddhist stuff jumped out at me. And th that was the beginning, and I, I followed that thread for the next, I don't know, six or seven years, really, digging into Buddhist psychology as much as I could, before really turning to, uh, to Western uh, psychology, Western medicine, uh, and Western psychiatry. So I, I've always been looking at what I learned about being a therapist through the lens of, of Buddhist thought. Yeah. Um, so that, that's been motivating me from the beginning. Tell me what, what it was that was jumping out to you. What, what was the Buddha saying that... that uh, the first thing I read was, uh, uh, the untrained mind is like a fish thrown on dry ground, trembling all day, struggling all day mm. to escape from itself. And I was like, oh, this person knows <laughs> what my mind is like. <laughs> so, right. um, so I was like, oh, maybe there's hope for me, you know? Um, and uh, so that was in that first, you know, my freshman year world religion class. And then the next year, uh, I took a psychophysiology, psychophysiology class, a mind-body, you know, a psychology class. And the teaching fellow was a person named Daniel Goleman, mm. who went on to write Emotional Intelligence. Right. Uh, and he had been to India already and uh, was, you know, studying uh, various kinds of meditation. And he oriented me. He... He sort of, uh, he said, oh, you want to learn more? My friends are teaching at this place in Boulder this summer. Uh, you could go out there. And, I, and uh, you know, I met a, the whole uh, a coterie of uh, uh, Western uh, translators of Eastern thought. Yeah. And, uh, you know, befriended as many of them as I could. There's some really important concepts that, that come up in Buddhism that, that reflect, I think, the way it feels to be human, uh, the way that our minds work. I love that passage you read earlier. But, 
But you you often use this idea of dukkha. Uh, you you've talked about that quite a bit. What what yeah. does that mean in Buddhist in Buddhist terms? Well, when the when the Buddha gave his first teachings, he he gave them in the form of the uh, the way doctors in his day talked. So he talked about the illness. He talked about the cause of the illness. He said there was a cure, and then he outlined the you know what the treatment was for the illness. So the, he used one word for the illness, which was dukkha, uh, and that's ordinarily translated as suffering, which has given Buddhism kind of a bad name. You know, life is suffering, and uh, you know. Uh, but uh, a, a better translation, as far as I've learned, is um, uh, uh, unsatisfactoriness. That yeah. there's there's something in life, even a good life, even a life without, you know, loss and illness and, and uh, so on, uh, ev- even in a life that's filled with joy, there's a, an aspect of unsatisfactoriness because we know that it can't last forever, mm. you know. So, um, but the word that he used, dukkha, um, if you take the word apart, uh, ka means face, and duh means like it's hard or it's difficult. So what, what the Buddhists seemed to be saying was that there are aspects to life that are hard to face. And uh, they didn't have a word for trauma in the Buddha's day, but uh, he came up with this word. Sukha is the opposite, means sweet to face. So that was the joyful aspect of life. But, but he said you can't have the one without the other, you know. There's always this uh, undercurrent of what's hard to face. And our psychological tendency is, which we, in our language, we call it dissociation, you know, our tendency is to turn away from that which is difficult to face. And that, that's what happens in trauma, you know, or in post-traumatic stress. We, we try not to feel the difficult feelings, but they have nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. So they, they stay, you know, sort of latent in the body and rear up in, uh, you know, later times in our intimate lives or, or in our dreams. So the Buddha said, oh, this aspect that's hard to face, if we can train our minds, if we can train ourselves to actually be with that which is difficult to face, we have a chance to uh, uh, have a better life. Mm. And, and that idea that even, even those that live what we would think of as a pleasant, charmed life are dealing with an unsatisfactoriness, just as you say. I mean, I remember once a, hearing a Buddhist teacher say, you know, sometimes all you want to do is is relax into that nice, comfortable chair. But if you sit in the chair for six hours, your back will inevitably begin to ache because of the shape of the chair. E- yeah. Even the good and pleasurable things, when we think they'll provide never-ending comfort, will, of course, <laughs> be unsatisfactory on some level, won't they? Well, that's the thing about being a therapist for 30 years or yeah. 40 years. You have to sit in a chair for... Uh, <laughs> Literally and figuratively. Six to eight yeah. hours a day, yes. <laughs> Believe me, the body starts to hurt after about half an hour of sitting in one, in one position. So you were obviously taking in, I think, the, these important ideas from Buddhism. And I, you were one of the writers that began to begin to link... Buddhist ideas, I mean, we haven't even yet even quite discussed meditation, but how those different ideas and tenets began to uh, emerge in Western psychology. So can you continue that thread for us a little bit? Yeah, sure. Well, I always saw my earlier books as uh, translating or interpreting Buddhist thought into the Western psychological language that we all speak you know, even if we're not Freudian or, or Freudian-influenced, his ideas of the mind, the ego, you know, the instincts, the, the superego or the conscience, uh, th- those ideas uh, have really permeated the way we think about emotional life and mental life. So um, I wanted to take the, the Buddhist uh, psychological and philosophical ideas that uh, so helped me in my early life and, and talk about them in the language that I was learning in my training as a Western psychotherapist and psychiatrist. Uh, so I wrote a book called Thoughts Without a Thinker, and I wrote a book called Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart, where I, I tried to talk about how um, the Buddha wasn't the only one to uh, uh, 
tout the benefits of putting your mind into neutral and learning how to observe yourself. You know, even Freud, in beginning uh, his practice of psychoanalysis, was using this strange capacity that we all have as humans to be both subject and object to our own experience. You know, our thoughts are thinking themselves in a certain way, but we're also capable of observing or watching uh, the thinking process that's happening within us. You know, our observing awareness is separate in a certain way from our emotional and mental experience. And both psychotherapy and meditation play upon this curious quality that we have as human beings to reflect upon our own experience. So I wanted to you know, draw those parallels and then take it from there. Yeah. Can you go a little further into how you see meditation and some types of psychotherapy mirroring each other in interesting and mysterious ways? Well, um, in the psychodynamic tradition, they talk about uh, the benefits of creating what they call a therapeutic split in the ego. Mm. So that's what I was talking about before, that we can, we can observe our own process. In Buddhist psychology, the, the, um, the teaching that's moved me the most, uh, I kept hearing over and over again in uh, meditation retreats that I would do with teachers like uh, Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein, who might be familiar to you or to your listeners, where they would say things, and I, and I would scribble it down on these little notebooks that I would smuggle into my meditation retreats where you weren't supposed to be mm-hmm. reading or writing. Uh, but they would say things like, it's not what you're experiencing that matters, it's how you relate to it. And somehow, every time I heard something like that, I would be like, oh, that's right. You know, it's that, because you can't control, as much as we try to control our lives, Uh, and our experience, we can't control everything. So there's always this element that the Buddha was talking about also, about what's hard to face. There's always this element that we can't control, but we do have some control over how we relate to what's happening. You know, when you're, when you're driving on the freeway and someone cuts you off, you know, you can, you can uh, 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 give access to your road rage or you can be cool, you know? There's a little bit of choice involved. And meditation in one way, and therapy in its own way, play upon that capacity that we have to affect how we relate to our lives, how we relate to our experience, and how we relate to each other. There's more choice uh, uh, in all of that than we instinctively feel. Can you talk about how that functions, particularly with people who have dealt with extremely hard or traumatic things that are, have been trying to turn away from them? How, how, do, how does it work in those kind of very heavy cases? Uh, well, you know, our, I don't know if this is unique to our culture or if it's been like this forever, um, but I know, it's, I know it's true in our culture. That, that there's a kind of rush to normal when huh. uh, uh, bad things happen, difficult things happen, when we lose a, a child or a parent or a partner, when, when we get a diagnosis that we weren't expecting, when uh, an earthquake happens or fires or, uh, you know, that all kind of, even COVID now, you know. Um, so we give a little bit of room you know, for, okay, you know, uh, there's grief, there's sorrow, there's supposedly the, the five stages that uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross right. outlined for, uh, you know, uh, dealing with grief, and then we're supposed to be over it. But my experience as a therapist with, with all kinds of people who have had all kinds of unexpected, difficult things happen is that there's really no playbook for how it's going to go, that the feelings don't come in you know, little packets, little quantum packets that uh, uh, you can get through uh, uh, rage and then you get to uh, bargaining and then you get to sorrow. They, they come, they come uh, unbidden you know, in unexpected ways and you have to learn 
which therapy uh, can really help with. You have to learn how to um, be with yourself uh, in, in when you're experiencing things that you uh, never expected you were going to have to experience. Mm. So uh, meditation sort of gives you the technology of how to settle into the um, uh, unexpected, uh, uh, difficult uh, changes that we're all subject to. But the the back and forth interpersonal relationship that therapy affords is another way of learning how to be with life in all of its complexity. Mm. Yeah, and I just I want to bring even further emphasis to this idea uh, that in my study of grief as well that in some ways the the Kubler Ross five stages it can be almost harmful to some people to think that they could just follow through this in and out like a course and be done when i think just as you say more more modern thinking is that it it's a bit more complicated and messy than all of that and mark i don't know about you but i i feel like when we think about trauma or grief we also are just in such a a de-ritualized space now, a place where we don't even have spaces to grieve, to be in trauma. People are scared to talk about it with one another. It, it's a culture that's so deeply avoidant of this stuff. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, the, the de-ritualization. I, I think that's a, that's a void that therapy uh, steps into. Yeah. In, you know, at least in uh, on the East Coast, you know, in New York and uh, and in some places on the West Coast, therapy is is still alive, and and people aren't so ashamed of ne- needing to seek that space. But you, you know, it's really sort of a sacred space, therapy, um, because where where else these days can anyone go to sit in a room? Uh, with another, you know, caring person and have an unscripted kind of conversation where uh, we learn how to make room for whatever it is that that needs to show itself, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I, then, and there's a ritual to therapy, you know. It's a, uh, you come for an hour or 45 minutes these days for some people, but you know, at a given time during the week. And there's, it's, the, the formality of it, I think, is very useful in that kind of ritualized way. Yeah. I want to return to something you said a little bit earlier, which is this idea of how we, how we cling to the stories we have about ourselves and how mm. those stories get so stuck and feel so immovable. Can you, can you say more about that? Well, you know, I've, I, uh, I've just written this recent book. Yeah. Um, where uh, uh, the heart of the book, uh, I tried to pick out one psychotherapy session a week where I thought something happened. There was some kind of movement for the person or I was using what I'd learned from Buddhism in some, you know, hopefully creative way uh, to show how people generally bring their stories about who they think they are with them wherever they go, and that those stories, uh, uh, while they contain a lot of wisdom, we all kind of know who we are and what our problems are and what, you know, what our strengths and weaknesses are. But those stories also can constrict us or restrict us or imprison us um, in, or rigidify us, yeah. uh, I could go on, make us anxious. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, uh, we often don't need those stories about ourselves as much as we think we do. Like I, I had a teacher, um, early in my journey who used to say to me, uh, you know, you're not who you think you are, Mark. You know, and just that, like I'm not who I think I am. Hmm. Then, then, we, but I thought what I think I, I thought I was what I thought. You know, like, um, but to realize that, uh, you know, even the therapist doesn't really know who you are. You, you know, but the therapist can see the way that you're holding yourself back. Right. You know, that's that's a lot. What we, we're, the a therapist is like a. A good massage person, in a way, 
you know, like the massage person can feel where the muscle tension is, can feel where the constriction is in the body and works around the edge of it to loosen it. Mm. Well, a, a psychotherapist can feel the defenses that have been erected by a self that's struggling to survive, you know, all alone in this world. Uh, um, and how those defenses have uh, worked to make the person less than who they really want to be and could be, mm -hmm. you know, uh, how, it, how those defenses are in a way stopping someone not just from grieving, but also from loving. And so that's the job of the therapist is to, you know, uh, uh, get around the edge of that and make the reflective awareness of the patient uh, uh, ally with that task to begin to loosen up or relax those defenses that have been built up over yeah. a life. Are there any stories or examples that in your new book that maybe you could just tell us briefly about, about a patient that you've been working with and maybe how you were able to use a bit of a Buddhist therapeutic approach with that person? Um, yes, well, the, the, the book is full of little tiny examples, yeah. n not of uh, any major breakthroughs, I would say, but sure. of uh, me as the therapist trying to get around the edge of uh, one of these narratives that, uh, that someone has constructed and, you know, that's keeping holding them back. So that the first one in the book uh, is about a patient who, who I gave the name of Jack to as a pseudonym, whose um, parents were Holocaust survivors. And uh, he was born uh, after the war. Uh, both of his parents had families before the war, children before the war, who had been killed. They, the parents had met in a displaced persons camp, had come to America with no money, you know, and started over. And this, this man, my patient, now in his 60s, uh, came to his session with me saying, uh, basically from the beginning of the session, will I ever be healed? Hmm. You, you know, come on, you're my therapist, basically. Will I ever be healed? Help me. Um, because he had been basically struggling his whole life to try to heal his parents who were carrying this sadness that as a boy he could never understand, yeah. uh, uh, but that he felt. And he would uh, recurrently come to his parents, you know, what, was I a good boy today? Like feeling that somehow the way we all do as children, if our parents are unhappy, if our parents are fighting, if our parents are uh, drinking, you know, we all as children tend to feel that we must be the cause. So. Uh, um, he was carrying this feeling, you know, in a kind of uh, uh, almost exaggerated form because of the depth of his parents' suffering. But, but I, I, I tell the story because I think many of us feel something similar. And um, so he said to me, will I ever be healed? And I had a moment of inspiration uh, where I realized, oh my God, that he, he's actually the healer, you know. Here, his parents had lost their children. Here he was born, you know, after the, after the war. He was the healing energy. Hmm. So I said something like that to him and, and then asked him if uh, he had ever heard of the Buddhist notion of the, the bodhisattva, of uh, Avalokiteshvara, who uh, was Kuan Yin in China. Kuan Yin, the name means she who hears our cries. He had never heard of any of this, and I think he thought I was a little out mm. there. But, um, but I said, you know, you must have heard the cries of your parents, and you came to heal them. So uh, uh, why, why can't we look at it that way? Mm. So that, that was, and that actually made an impression. And uh, he allowed me to use the story in the book and has come back to me, uh, you know, since. And uh, let me know how, uh, how helpful that was. Yeah. How does someone like that, which is a story that's in many ways so relatable, as, as so many of us grow up in dysfunctional families or parents in which the children had to be, in many sense, parentified, they had to take care of the parents, yeah. how do you begin to change that 
that narrative or think of your story differently or retell it or, or be in a different yeah. relationship with it? Well, in, in, in this kind of issue, for this kind of issue, I've been very influenced by a, uh, a British pediatrician and psychoanalyst named Donald Winnicott. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and uh, Winnicott was the, he's the person who originated the phrase, the good enough parent or the good enough mother. Uh, because uh, his his um, uh, his point was that as parents we all fail uh, uh, immensely, but we recover. So that there's there's rupture for the children, but repair. The good enough parent is able to admit his or her mistakes and still come through for the children. Uh, but he also said there are many 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 occasions where. Um, parents, for whatever reason, are not able to be good enough. And in those situations, the children have to uh, create what he called a caretaker self or a false self for themselves. And that's sort of going along with what you're saying, where the children have to parentify, you know. So taking care not just of the uh, of the parents who are troubled, but also of themselves, because there's an absence mm. uh, in the caretaking environment where there should have been a presence. And um, uh, because that self that's created, Winnicott said that that self comes from the thinking mind, that there's a kind of um, a running away from the emotional self and into the, uh, the, the, into the thinking self, you know, where, uh, where we create uh, this kind of stand-in for uh, uh, who we might have been if if the environment was more facilitating for us, you know? There's a kind of flight from emotional experience. So the way to, um, to help someone uh, who has had that experience and is now an adult is to kind of teach them how to relax back into themselves, into the unknown, more emotionally laden parts of themselves that they had to forsake in order to get through their younger life. So both therapy and meditation create what Winnicott called a holding environment, which you can think of not just as being, you know, a mother holding a baby, but also uh, parents uh, being, being secure enough in their presence. You know, the example Winnicott always gave was the mother in the next room, you know, uh, uh, making dinner while the child knows that the parent is there, but it feels safe enough to play, to explore with their own imagination, their own world that they're, you know, partially creating. So therapy and meditation both afford an opportunity to dip back down into uh, that kind of experience that might have been uh, left behind in the uh, in the rush to normal that many of us have uh, had to go through. Mm. And I think you're speaking to something which is very hard but but profound, and which is perhaps the truth that only really we can heal ourselves. In that case, there there will be no other shot at parents, you know, doing it the right way, especially if they're older or who have gone. So there, there's a much deeper internal process happening here is what I'm hearing you say as well. Yeah, well, I, I, I quote this other uh, big influence on me, a, a writer named Adam Phillips mm. uh, in the book who uh, actually wrote the first good uh, little biography of Winnicott. So he's also influenced by Winnicott. But he, he says something about the, uh, our most violent form of nostalgia is the looking back to uh, try to blame the parents for what they weren't able to do for us. Uh. That, that the, um, the task is really to go forward and to realize that the, um, the freedom, in, a, in the Buddhist sense, or uh, the, the innocence, uh, I, I talk about um, uh, one of the things that links both uh, psychotherapy and uh, Buddhist psychology is the uh, restoration of innocence after experience. You, you know, that there's a sense in Buddhism and in some forms of uh, Western psychotherapy that um, the, the, our potential for, um, 
how, uh, how can I say it, our, our potential for being or for happiness uh, or for love is there in us from the beginning. There's a, a Buddhist koan, you know, what was your face before you were born? You know, that we, the, the potential uh, in, in, from the Buddhist side for awakening, it's there in all of us. Mm. The, the Dalai Lama said there's a pure body of perfect spontaneity lurking within, you know, that we have to find a way to uncover. Mm. So I'm trying to say that uh, both psychotherapy and uh, meditation can aid in that recovery. If you're just joining us, my guest this week is Mark Epstein, psychiatrist, psychotherapist, and the author most recently of The Zen of Therapy, Uncovering a Hidden Kindness in Life. And still to come, the myth of ego. And is a little egocentricity healthy? We'll continue our conversation with Mark Epstein after this short break. Stay close. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled, this first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We'll now continue our conversation with psychiatrist, psychotherapist, and author Mark Epstein. In the first half of my conversation, Epstein explained how Buddhist practices and teachings have shaped and influenced him as a practitioner of modern psychotherapy, which he believes has stepped into the void left by ancient rituals. Epstein shares stories and anecdotes about his patients, illustrating the links between Buddhism, the theories of British pediatrician and psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott, and Freudian psychoanalysis. I pick up the conversation by asking about some of the challenges we all struggle with, loss, death, and uncertainty. One aspect of, of Buddhist philosophy that's, that's always challenged me, and, mm-hmm. and I wonder how it works into the therapeutic space as well, is in, in therapy we often... We acknowledge and deal with the really hard parts of ourselves, and, and in that case, Buddhism works well. We, we can see the hard parts as, as impermanent or, or understand them through dependent origination or the, the product of causes and conditions. But we also then have to acknowledge that the good parts of ourselves, the more pleasurable emotions like happiness and love, are also impermanent as well, and that... Buddhism has to hold that line. It can't be one without the other. There has to be an acceptance of all of that. I had a wonderful teaching once when I was traveling in Asia with, with um, some of my friends and teachers. Uh, we, we went to a forest monastery in Thailand where Jack Cornfield had spent a couple of oh, yeah. years as a monk. And his teacher was a medita- forest meditation master named Ajahn Chah. And uh, there were maybe ten of us in this in this group. It was a long time ago, um, but we had a we had lunch with Ajahn Chah and then had a chance to uh, ask him some questions. And I can't remember any of the questions, but I remember his answer. And his answer speaks to your to your question. He he held up the, his drinking glass, uh, which he had by his side. He said, "Do you do you see this glass?" He said, "I love this glass. Mm. It holds the water admirably." When the light shines on it, it reflects it beautifully. Uh, if, I, if I touch it in the right way, it makes a lovely sound. He said, but for me, this glass is already broken. When the wind blows and knocks it off the shelf, or if my elbow hits it and it falls to the ground and breaks, I say, of course, because I know it's already broken. But he said, and this was actually the key point, he said, because I know that this glass is already broken, Every minute with it is precious. Mm. So it's that ability to, you know, to live life, you, you know, knowing that every minute with it is precious. Like, who can do that? You know, like I would take every third minute as precious, yeah. every fourth, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but that vision of being able to live like that uh, means like the happiness, the happiness can be impermanent, but how we're relating to our life 
that doesn't have to be impermanent. Mm -hmm. you know? That's something that we can create moment to moment to moment. We actually have that ability to, you know, to feel the, the poignancy, uh, to revel in the poignancy, and to honor the love that we're all capable of. And this strikes me as a lesson that, that I am still relatively young, I suppose, but it's one that I, I feel becomes richer as you age. And frankly, people around you begin to fall ill, they die, relationships come, they go. I think you begin to tap in more in, into the fact that things are really dynamic and they're going to continue to escalate so. And it, have you noticed that as well? I mean, I feel like that's just such an intrinsic part of who we are. And if you can tap into what you're saying, I think there's a lot of beauty to that. Well, um, I didn't think I could write this book uh, that, that, uh, that I've just finished, you know, until I was in my 60s, hmm. uh, be because what I, what I wanted to do with it was to show how it, just in the ordinary back and forth of therapy, like, like this is really just what therapy is like, like conversations every day with people about the quotidian, ordinary aspects of their lives. And yet in having those conversations, you know, which are filled with, you know, both loss and grief and sadness and also much joy, yeah. you know, that having those conversations, something else starts to shine through. And I started to read these uh, Zen poems while I was working on, uh, you know, writing up the sessions, because the Zen poems, uh, so they take just the tiniest, you know, bit of nature and then they make a whole like vision out of it. And I started to think that, oh, oh these are the, the therapy sessions are like Zen haikus, you know, mm. and, and really every every day is like a haiku, you know, like where, where's the can we feel the, uh, the, the wisdom breaking through? Mm. So when, one of my favorite poems that I found in it is, goes like this. It's from, from Ikkyu from the 17th century. Self, other, right, wrong, wasting your life arguing, you're happy. Really, you are happy. And so that seemed to personify, <laughs> wow. you know, uh -huh. like my mind and also what therapy is like <laughs> and also what, you know, but that, that idea that you're happy, really, you are happy. Like, could that be true? Really, mm. could that be true? And if it is, how, how do we get there, you know? Yeah. One, one theme I, I'm always interested in as well is how, how the ego gets in the way of happiness so much. And you write really interestingly about the formation of the ego and how it functions. Can you tell us a bit about that? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, there's a kind of myth in Buddhist circles that we're supposed to get rid of the ego. Yeah. You know, that, that ego is the problem. Um, so I, I have um, always taken issue with that because I, I know what it's like when you don't have an ego because that's what we call psychosis. Ah, you know, the huh. people who are really suffering from mental illness, they, their ego has gone away and you see what's left, you know. Uh, so we all need our egos. The, the ego develops um, in, in the first years of life to help us manage uh, um, the pressures from the external world. You know, the ego is like a mediator. So there's inner and outer, and the ego is like the interface. Or there's, um, uh, you know, in Freudian terms, there's the superego and the id, meaning like the, uh, the ethical foundation that comes from the parents and the society, and then the instinctual life. And the ego has to manage those competing demands. So the, the ego is like always in the middle, you know. Um, so we need an ego. We, we need it to pay the bills and take out the garbage and, uh, you know, teach us how to live. And in a certain way, meditation, mindfulness, is a, an ego function. You know, we're, we're training our, our minds how to observe ourselves. That's all ego. Uh, but we don't have to be in our egos all the time. That was when, when I wrote the book called Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart. I was extolling the benefit, uh, not just of ego integration or ego disintegration, which would be psychosis, but of what Winnicott called unintegration, which is where, you know, where we learn how to relax while 
watching sports or mm. listening to music or uh, you know um, meditating, for instance. That's all about ego unintegration, and uh, that's it. Turns out to have enormous benefit to uh, you know, like we all need that those periods of uh, recuperation. How to sit with uncertainty, maybe, has been one of the great questions yeah. of, of the past few years. And I, and I think, uh, again, about, about meditation, which is just our ability to, to sit with what comes to mind and to change our relationship to it. How, how would a Buddhist approach understand uncertainty? I feel like it's so woven into the philosophy itself. Yeah, well, I think uncertainty is at the core of Buddhist thought. Mm. You, you know, that, I think that was, it's not unique to the Buddha that he pointed out how much uncertainty there is in life, but he did point it out with great clarity. So, uh, you know, and that was 2,600 years ago, you know, they were dealing with uncertainty. So um, uh, the hope is that uh, an immersion in Buddhist meditation or Buddhist psychology or Buddhist philosophy or Buddhist thought would help one deal with uncertainty uh, um, and in particular would help one in this time period deal with this very particular uncertainty. Um, so from my own, you know, just very personal place, um, all my time on meditation retreat, which is really about moment-to-moment, uh, moment, day to day, you really don't know what's going to be coming up in your mind, and you just have to cope, and you learn a little bit how to uh, stay balanced in the face of uncertainty. It has helped me make these adjustments. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm as resistant to change as the next person, so um, if you talk to my family, <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure they would they would be extolling the, the benefits. Yeah, fair, fair enough. Well, another very related topic is, and, and another always just question I have sitting with, with Buddhist philosophy is how we understand death in the Buddhist system. That mm. when we look at uh, the Christian Judeo schools or or Hindu thought, we see this idea of, of a transmigration of a soul of some kind. There, there's something that will continue. Some, some deep intrinsic part of us will go on. And I've always found that the Buddhist answer to this is to me more complex and hard to even know or sit with. And I, I wonder for you how you've landed on understanding this. Well, I don't think any of us can really understand what comes after death, mm. you, you know. Um, any, anyone who says they know, um, you know, has to be fooling somebody. Um, so certainly the, the conventional scientific materialist view is that, you know, uh, like at the end of The Sopranos, you know, the lights go out and that's it. Yeah. Um, and I come uh, from a, uh, a scientific, my uh, family, a scientific academic family. Mm -hmm. My father was a, was a physician. He'd left behind any, any trace of spirituality. You know, uh, when, when his friends um, died, he, or, he mostly wouldn't go to their funerals because what's the point? You know, when you're dead, you're dead kind of thing. Oh. Um, but then, then my father got a brain tumor, the, the kind of, that Ted Kennedy and John McCain got, uh, that came on the non-dominant side of his brain. So he knew that he had the brain tumor and he was a physician and he knew what it meant. Um, and I realized I had never tried to talk to him about the Buddhist view, whatever my take on the Buddhist view was of death. Um, uh, but I didn't want to, uh, I was like, you know, oh my God, I've never talked to my father about this. What if, what if there's something true in the Buddhist way of thinking that uh, could be useful to him? So I, I screwed up my courage and called him on the phone from my office one, one afternoon and, um, and said, you know, we've never talked about this, but do you want to know, like, could this be helpful? And he was like, you know, couldn't have been nicer. It's like, of course, tell mm. me whatever you want. And so this was my understanding. This was, and I put it. I, I couldn't speak with any uh, Buddhist uh, language to my father, who you know um, wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't, just would have, uh, wouldn't have uh, penetrated. So uh, this is this was 
the best that I could do. It was something like this. I said, um, you, you know that feeling that you have deep inside when you were 20 or 40 or 60 or 80, like how you feel to yourself, it's not really age dependent, like it's sort of the same, you know who you are from the inside. And he said, yeah. And I said, but that feeling, if you try to put your finger on it, it's kind of invisible, that feeling. Like you can't really say what it is, but you, yet you feel it, you know it. Hmm. Um, which is, is certainly true for me. Like what I, I think of myself as, you know, 33, not 68, but yeah. whatever. Um, so I said, what, the, what I understand the Buddhists seem to be saying about the process of death is that if you can relax your mind into that feeling of being who you've always been to yourself, that, but that kind of invisible feeling. If you can relax into that kind of invisible feeling, you can ride that feeling out through the death process, you know, as the body, uh, as the body fades away. Mm. That feeling is what, is what stays, you, you know. Um, and, and my father's like, uh, okay, darling, I'll, I'll try, yeah. you, you know. Um, so that's the, best, that's the best I've ever been able to do. Mm. With, uh, and I do, you know, that's the faith aspect of Buddhism. That's where Buddhism is really, uh, you know, it, it wants to be a psychology, but it's also a religion, mm. you know. So the, the idea that we can, that, you know, that that... Um, that that possibility exists, that something continues, you know, what, whether you want to call it a soul or a self or a no soul or a no self or a wisdom body or, you know, love, uh, that there, there's some aspect of all of this maybe that uh, we came in with and that we go out with. Mm. And that maybe, I mean, just to be super existential here and, and, and be in this unknowing space, that, that part that it may, it may go somewhere. It may go in, into the universe, into another being, into we don't know. I guess there's still, that's the ineffable, unknowable part, isn't it? Well, the idea that it may go somewhere, there's some, some Buddhist teacher who, when faced with that, was like, well, where would I go? Yeah. You know, that there's somewhere else, I don't know. I mean, maybe there, who, we don't know. There's cosmologies, you know. Uh, but the idea, the idea that's helped me the most is, you, you know, like this, this is what we know. This world is what we know. So, mm. but um, maybe there's more to this world than what we know. Yeah. Uh, so to be open to the unknown, you know, we, we cert- our egos don't know everything. We don't know everything about this world. I'll tell you that. I, I also cherish just any thoughts you have on your, again, your decades of working with, with, with patients and seeing the human condition play out day in and day out, year after year. Uh, are, are there conclusions that you've come to about, about who we are or about what it means to be us that, that just continue to shine through to you? Uh, I wish I could say that there were. Uh, uh, no, I think the, the, the amazing thing, the thing that I love about being a therapist uh, is that the, the relationships mm. that uh, unfold in the uh, therapy container uh, uh, are so alive and so full of love and so meaningful and so interesting um, that they have been uh, fulfilling me. And uh, uh, my hope and, and this is, again, a kind of a faith thing, but the, a faith that's born out of decades now of doing this, is that it's also some of those feelings are present for the people who uh, have uh, given their time to me, mm. you know, that, that it's actually reciprocal. And um, it, um, I had a therapist once, one, one of the two therapists that I worked with, who used to say to me, you know, true love is always reciprocal. Uh, and uh, that 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 phrase has really helped me with my patients also. So to to realize that there's recipro- that there is this reciprocity that's resonating, you know, through all of us, 
uh, that's just such a marvelous uh, thing to be to feel a part of. Mm. Do you imagine you'll continue to see patients into your seventies? Oh, into my seventies, I do imagine that. Mm. Yes, I have a, um, a a teacher of mine, uh, a psychoanalytic teacher, lived until his uh, into his nineties, and he said. Uh, uh, at a certain point in his 90s, people no longer wanted to be in the room with him, huh. you know, because just being being with that that old man was, was no longer <laughs> it was too aversive, you know. <laughs> but uh, but I think perhaps the Zoom thing will uh, allow me to go longer, you know, <laughs> if my body holds on. Do you still maintain an active meditation practice? And if so, where has that practice taken you now? Um, well, the answer to that is yes, I, I still maintain an active meditation practice, but, but one of the things that I'm trying to say uh, in all of my work is that we, we tend to think of meditation as an intrapersonal, you know, intrapsychic, inside one's own mind you're mm. meditating. But what I have found is that it can also be an interpersonal, relational exercise, you know, mm. so that being a therapist is having a meditation practice. You know, why do we have to think of those two things as different? You know, yeah. the, way, the way I try to pay attention in the office, often more successfully uh, to another person, is the way I try to pay attention to my own mind and body when, when I'm officially meditating. Mm. So, so the hope is that meditation comes to infuse a whole life, whether you're a therapist or not, that you learn how to use it, you know, how to see it everywhere. That's, the, that's, I think, uh, one of the points. Mark Epstein, thank you so much for, for spending this time with us and exploring these, these big questions. I've really, really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. Thank you for giving me the time. Once again, that was psychiatrist and psychotherapist and author Mark Epstein. His most recent book is called The Zen of Therapy, Uncovering a Hidden Kindness in Life. And that wraps up this week's show. Thanks as always for listening. Don't forget to check out last week's show on minimalism and why decluttering can be so overwhelming. You can find links to our guests at kcrw.org slash lifeexamined. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day and we'll see you next week.